So uh, in 1998, Disney released the movie Mulan. Do you guys remember Mulan? Uh, the story, in case you've uh, forgotten or maybe you're not familiar, is about a girl in China who, it's like feudal China, right, whose father is called to go to war but is too old. And so his daughter, Mulan, Fa Mulan, takes up his armor and steps into her father's place. And this was part of Disney's effort to uh, diversify their stories, to kind of reach a different audience they had never done an East Asian princess before. And so Disney thought that Mulan would be a hit in China, an emerging market, right? Like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. China's getting a taste for kind of American capitalism, and so we're going to make this movie. It's going to be a big hit in China. Now, Mulan, if you didn't know, bombed in China. Okay, first off, many in China thought Mulan didn't really look Chinese. Okay, so with the animation style, they kind of looked at it, and they were like, oh, this, this looks like a American. They said she looked foreign to them, right, which obviously is non-Chinese. They're Chinese, so somebody who is not as foreign to them is, doesn't look Chinese. Uh, but even more importantly, they said she was too Americanized culturally. So while America, while uh, this American company, Disney, thought they were making a movie about China, the Mulan of legend, of, of actual Chinese legend, was, act- was uh, acting selflessly for the sake of the honor of her family. So she didn't want her family to have dishonor, so that's why she steps into the role of her father and takes on the armor and, like, goes in his place. But in the movie, if you guys remember, the, Disney almost flips that notion on its head. It's not about the honor of the family. It's actually about her trying to discover her own individual identity in the midst of a culture that is about family honor. You guys remember the first song? I, don't, I know Mulan a little too well, I think, to be able to recounting it to be recounting it this well without having watched it in, like, a long time. But uh, remember, it's like, you know, you'll bring honor to us all. There's this idea. She goes to the matchmaker, and, like, they're doing this song, right? This song and dance about that. And the idea is that's, like, the bad premise that Disney presents to you, right? Like, oh, look, this is bad if you just live for the honor of your family. What's good is if you discover your own identity, Self-actualization. If I look deep inside and I find who I am and I live out that person, that's real. That's good. That's going to make me happy. This idea of sacrificing that for the sake of my family, that's bad. And when Chinese audiences looked at that, they were like, that's not us. Those ideas aren't our ideals. Right? That's not our culture. Those aren't our cultural values. So it bombed there. Now, I wonder, Disney's message typically is, right? They have like two big messages in all of their movies. One is true love, the notion of true love. You got to discover true love. You got to have true love's kiss, like all that kind of stuff, right? The second message, and maybe even the more prevalent message is this, as long as you are true to yourself, all your dreams will come true. Just believe, right? Just believe in yourself. And all your dreams will come true. In fact, in the movie Mulan, there's even a song called True to Your Heart. Right? I'm going to say the lyrics. I'm not going to sing them. But baby, I knew at once that you were meant for me. Deep in my soul, I know that I'm your destiny. Though you're unsure, why fight the tide? Don't think so much. Let your heart decide. 
Right? Don't you, like, isn't that such, isn't that so indicative of our culture? Don't think about it. Just follow your heart. Just follow your dreams. Just follow whatever it is inside. And my question is, do we recognize how particularly American that notion is? That it's a cultural notion being peddled as universal truth. If you discover what's inside, find your truth, right? Find your identity. Find your you. It's in all our songs. It's in all our TV shows. It's in all our movies. It's everywhere. Here's the problem. The real question is, who are you? The real question Like they say, as long as you're true to yourself, you'll be happy. But the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be true to yourself? Who who are you supposed to be? So we're we're entering into a new series called Dear God. And part of this, remember I told you guys a while back when we did that Q&A kind of thing, or we were just getting questions from you guys. And some of this came through our membership. Some of it came just from on Sundays. Um, But we wanted to see what are, you know, because we have struggles and questions, don't we? We don't really come every Sunday knowing everything and having it all figured out. And that's that's fine. That's something that I think we're going to go through for the entirety of our lives while we're on this earth. And what we're going to be doing in this series is looking at some of these questions and exploring them, not in the vein of the world, what the world says, but biblically, what does the Bible have to say? What does God want you to know about these Doubts, fears, anxieties, questions, thoughts that you have. And so it's, you know, it's called Dear God, and we're going to be asking a question every week. And today's question is one of the more fundamental questions pertaining to our identity. It's simply, Dear God, who am I? Who am I? Who am I meant to be? Who am I supposed to be? Who did you create me to be? That's the question we're going to be looking at today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, uh, let's go and open them up to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can just look up at the screen. This is God's word, and it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I only really have two points today. Here's the first point. You are least you when you are pursuing the things on earth. You are the least you. You know, who are you? Like, who am I inside? Who am I supposed to be? I can tell you this. You're the least you when you are living in pursuit of the things on earth. Now, in this this text here, Paul tells us why we should set our hearts and minds on Christ. There, now, in Scripture, there are always these kind of two, uh, there are typically these two types of 
sentences, right? These two types of statements. There are indicatives and imperatives. We talk about this a lot. Indicatives are things, they're kind of these factual statements, these things that God is saying about us, right? Or that God is just saying a, a statement of truth. This is who you are. Typically, this is how it plays out for Christians. This is who you are. Therefore, an imperative is a command, right? You should live this way or live this way or do this or do that. Now, in this text, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, then he says, seek the things that are above. So these are imperatives, right? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And so he's saying, seek what's above, not on earth. Now, we'll get to that in a second. For now, I want to look more at the indicative. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, he explains basically the totality of our lives this way. Your past, you've died to that. Your present, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then your future, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, there are many kind of theological ideas being presented here. I'm going to not be able to get in-depth on all of them, but one... When he says, you've died, he is, and now your life is hidden with Christ because you've been raised with Christ. Now, he's already talked about some of this in a, you know, Paul has already talked about some of this in a previous part of this letter. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he's saying, when Jesus came, when Jesus came and walked on this earth and he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross, he took on your debt, right? And we call this justification. It's a legal term. It's the notion that you owe something, like you deserve something, some penalty, and Jesus, he has taken that from you and then he has given us his righteousness. So his perfect life, his perfect record is given to us, our our debt, everything we owe God because of our sin, everything we've ever done wrong, all of our rebellion, all of our turning against God, all of our selfishness and our greed and our, you know, pride and our lust, like all these things, all the ways, our lies, everything that we've ever done, that was taken by Jesus and he nailed it to the cross. And so to all of that, all that debt that you owe, you've died to that. In other words, Christ died so that you could die to your old self. We join with Christ in that we have died. And then we've been raised with Christ. Now, this means we're, we're dead to our past life, the life that we lived without Christ. Now, and, and if, for some of us, if we don't know Christ yet or we're unsure where we stand there, this is what he's inviting us into. He's saying, I can pay all that debt. I can cancel all of that if you would put your trust in me. See, this is important for us because the way you view your life now will be determined by where you believe you're going or where you believe you're supposed to be going. That's how you will measure your life. What are you supposed to be doing right now? Where are you supposed to be going? I don't mean right now, right now, right? I mean like right now in your life, in this stage of your life. What are you supposed to be doing? 
Are you supposed to have a house? Are you supposed to be married, you know, at this time? Like, those are the things. Are you supposed to have some kind of particular career? You're supposed to be making a certain amount of money. If those are the things that you believe, if you believe that's where you're supposed to be going, then you will judge your life now on the basis of where you stand with regard to that. This is like the earthly notion, though, right? The things that I've said. Those things I've mentioned, where your career track, you know, even uh, sometimes ministry, like that can be another notion. We think like, well, where we stand in these things determines our value, our worth, our success, who we are. Now, here's the interesting thing. The world testifies over and over and over again that there is no satisfaction in this. Like over and over and over again. Like Michael Jordan, the greatest, you know, by all accounts, the greatest player of all time. You know, six championships, 6-0 and in the finals, never went to a game seven, you know, 10 scoring titles, like all these NBAs, MVPs, all this stuff, right? And then, you know, when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame, his speech, so salty, right? Like, so bitter, this guy. And I'm like, what do you have to be bitter about? You're the greatest of all time. Everyone out there is calling you the greatest of all time. He's still pointing out a guy on the audience who beat him for his high school spot on a team. And he's like, he's like, he's like rubbing it in. It's like, come on, you're the greatest player of all time. Why, what do you care about rubbing it into some guy who never, you know, never had near the career that you had? But there's something so empty, right? About going to achievement and saying, this is what's going to define me. I'll give you guys another example. You know, in 2008, um, so there's this woman named uh, Ronda Rousey, right? And she was a former bronze medalist in judo, and she entered MMA. And first she was part of this, I, I've got it was like strike four, so whatever. It was does not UFC thing, because UFC didn't have a women's division at that time. And so they, she, she be, basically became the greatest, you know, in there. She was undefeated, and then the UFC bought this thing. And so she became the first UFC women's, you know, ultimate fighting championship, the first women's champion. And then she started these title defenses, right? So they would put other women up against her, and she just destroyed them. Like, if you don't know who Ronda Rousey is, um, I mean, you probably know who she is just in terms of pop culture. But in terms of her actual fighting ability, like, she was amazing. So her first fight, she fought uh, Sarah McMahon. And and it took her just over a minute to beat her. Her next defense, Alexis Davis, took her 16 seconds. Right? Knocked her out in 16 seconds. Cat... Um, Zingano, armbar in 14 seconds. She beat her in 14 seconds. That's the shortest match in UFC history. Beth Correa, 34 seconds, knockout. She, so she was 12-0, 6-0 in the UFC. She spent, um, <laughs> so I saw this thing. It said she spent 1,077 seconds in the octagon and she won $1.1 million in prize money. That, that is roughly $1,000 a second. <laughs> For every second that she spent in the ring, she was making $1,000. For every minute in the ring, she was making $60,000 per minute. And then her seventh title defense, she fought Holly Holm. 
She was heavily favored. And in the second round, home connected on a, you know, a kick, a leg kick to her face. She got knocked out. And then she, late, years later, she was on Ellen, right? And she recounted the incident this way. She, afterwards, she's in the room, the training room, or the medical room. And she said, honestly, I was sitting in the corner and was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. I mean, by all accounts, she's an extremely successful fighter. Considered one of the most dominant, you know, women's fighters of all time. But after all her achievement, all that mattered to her was that one loss. That's what defined her. That's all she could see, and she couldn't see past it. She said, I was thinking about killing myself. Because if I'm not this, what am I? Now, we, we'll all experience loss no matter what we do. But achievement as a central purpose has no answer for this. The only answer is more achievement. Go back. Do more. Win again. If you lose, you have to win again. If you fail, you have to get back up and do more. You have to succeed more. You have to make more money. You have to advance more. More success. More achievement. If your family's messed up, then fix it and make a better family. If things are bad, then, then, then get it together, right? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Get back out there. Do better. That's the only answer. But God in his love wants more for us than just the weak identity of earthly achievement. Your work or career or education, it's not strong enough to define you. It's not going to satisfy that sense in your heart that you must be somebody, that you're worth something. Your achievements will never hold up to the weight of need that you feel in your heart. And that's what God wants us to know, that if we're in him, you don't need to worry about achievement anymore because you're dead to that. He says, that notion, that idea that you have something to prove to people in the world, that idea that you have something to prove to your mom or your dad or your friends or, you know, people out there, whatever, that's gone. You died. You have died. And your life now is hidden with Christ in God. You're not you when you're pursuing the things on earth, living for the world's definition of worth. That's not the real you. That's not who God created you to be. That's, that's point one. Okay, here's, here's point two. You are most you when you are living in pursuit of Christ-likeness. You are most you. You are the most you, the best version of you, whatever you want to call it. This is who you were created to be. This is what you were created to do, to live in pursuit of Christ-likeness. In fact, uh, Genesis 1 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. You are made in the image of God. 
Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you. In other words, we cannot invent our purpose. We can only discover it, the one that God created us for. See, God's original purpose for humans was to live as his image bearers in the world. That's where our worth and our value comes from, right? God said, you're made in my image. You're made in my likeness. I want you to have dominion over all of the earth, all the birds, all the animals, all the creatures, everything, right? And you're going to spread my glory across all of the earth. That's your purpose. Now, that got messed up because of sin. So we cannot fulfill that purpose anymore, but in Christ, that purpose has been restored. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that, that are above because you can seek those things now. Seated at the right hand, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above. Now these, these ideas, um, you know, seek the things and set your mind. It doesn't mean just think about it. Right, if you, and if you actually look into the original language, I'm not going to get into a boring grammar lesson, but basically what it means is be decided, like decidedly commit to making this the purpose of your life. Actively pursue it. Live for it. What does it mean to be hidden with Christ? What does it mean that your identity is now hidden with Christ in God? Your, idea, your identity is hidden in Christ, who you are. So it means at least a couple things. One, you're never going to arrive. Right? And we say this all the time, right? But there's still some part of you that cannot be totally seen because it's hidden in Christ. You are in the process of becoming like him. And your true identity will one day, like the fullness of your identity in Christ, will be revealed at the return of Christ. But for now, you're always going to be a work in progress. Whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, it doesn't matter, right? There's never going to be a day where you say, I've got it all figured out. And if there's ever a day like that, then someone you love will tell you, no, you don't. Because that's not the right thing you should be, that's not what you should be thinking. You'll never feel, I've achieved enough, I finally feel secure in what I've accomplished. No, that's... If that's what we care about, that's never going to be fulfilled. Our identity being hidden in Christ means even though we know that we're never going to quote-unquote arrive, like we're never going to be perfect, like we're okay because, because it's Christ's righteousness we depend on. It's, it's God's grace we depend on, not ourselves, not, our, not, the, not even the future version of ourselves, not even what we'll become. Like one day I'm going to be a great you know, man of God. One day I'm going to be a great wife, a great mother. You know, one day I'm going to be a great, you know, pastor or missionary, whatever, like those things that we think, it's not even in that. It's just in Christ himself. So one, you're never going to arrive. Two, here's the second implication of, about being hidden in Christ, okay? It means that your identity is found when you search him, when you pursue him, not when you pursue yourself. How do you discover what is most you about you? It's not to look deep inside your heart and find the trueness, you know, the true gem, right? The true diamond in the rough that lies there, like in the sands of your heart. No, no, that's the Disney notion, right? That's, that's not real. You're just going to get confused. You're going to create some purpose out of your own heart. So... Um, I was, I'm reading this book, This Is Our Time, by Trevin Wax. He wrote this story 
uh, about his sister. So uh, he recounted this story, Thanksgiving 2015. His, insist- his sister invited everyone over, you know, his extended family over for the holidays. And so she, you know, her and her husband and, and their kids, they had just bought a new house. So they invited everybody over, extended family, you know, grandparents, him, his family, their kids. Like, so everybody's over there enjoying the house, having a good time. You know, they're like playing board games. They're watching Elf, you know, whatever. It's holiday time. You know, just loving it, right? Eggnog, the whole thing. They go to sleep. Middle of the night, they wake up. And they hear this noise, like a, you know, like, a, like an explosion kind of. Okay, and then she smells burning. Like, like there's, there's fire somewhere. And so they get all the kids up. You know, they start panicking, obviously. They're running around. They're scrambling. They get all the family together. Everyone gets out of the house, thankfully, safely. But the house... It burns down, the whole thing. Right? They just bought this house, brand new house. And, you know, so, so Trevin, he's, he's kind of talking to his sister and her husband, and they're talking about this, this incident. You know, and she's thankful that nobody was hurt, but she's like so, she's like devastated that they lost this house. They saved for so long, and they had prepared so much to get to this place where they could get this house and it all just burned down. And um, I think her husband, he said this. He said, I used to think of my life as an upward line from A to B. My B was the house, a car, good job, money for retirement. B is always better and always more. That's why at first it did feel like we were going backwards, like we'd lost a year or more. He says, when they lost the house. So he, puts, he puts the way that we view our life in these very simple terms, right? Right now, you're at A. Here's the question. What's your B? What is B? Career advancement. It's a new relationship. It's getting married. It's having a kid. It's buying a house. It's getting a new car. What is it? He says, when I viewed it like that, because the house was B, and I lost the house, so my B got demolished, so I moved backwards. In my life, my purpose, my identity, who I was, it was erased. Everything I worked for, all gone in an instant, in a fire that I had no control over. But he continued, he said, but after the fire, I realized that B is not more money. B is Christ-likeness. It's holiness. The top of the ladder is not a house or money or job security, but God doing everything he can to make me more like Jesus. He cares more about my heart than he does about my house. And he said, once he thought in those terms, B could never be taken away from him. It wasn't dependent on how much money he had. It wasn't dependent on where he stood in his relationships or where he lived or what job he had. It didn't, none of those things mattered. B was Jesus. And Jesus was always there to be pursued. And he said when he thought in those terms, he realized, this is what God has for me. This is what God has created me for. Not to accumulate things, not to achieve things but to to know him, to love him, to become like him. So Trevin Wax, after this incident, he goes back to his home, and then he 
he said, he thought about it, and he, he asked himself the question, um, you know, would I be okay if my house burned down? And then he said his sister actually said, that's not the right question. Because if we ever asked ourselves, you know, would I be okay if my house burned down or my car got stolen, you know, or all my, you know, whatever. Think, think of your most prized possession, whatever Apple product you own. We don't, like, whatever it is, right? Like, if that thing got destroyed, right, would I be okay? And she said, that's not the right question because if you're a Christian, no matter what it is, you'll be okay and you'll say that you'll be okay. So the right question is, do I believe that that thing makes me happier? Like, do I believe that having a house would make me happier? Do I believe that having another device would make me happier? Do I believe that more money would make me happier? A vacation would make me happier? Going here or going there or doing this or doing that, do I believe that that would make me happier because where your treasure is, there your heart is. If you believe that that's what would make you happier, then you don't believe that your happiness is really contained in Christ. Pursue Christ-likeness as your be. That is your be. Sure, there are other things in your life, things that are a part of it. It's the furniture of your life. It moves around. It's here, it's there. Certainly, there are other things that are important in your life, but they cannot determine, they cannot be given the weight of your heart to determine whether or not you are moving forward or backward. They can't be that big of a marker on the map of your life. Only Christ can be that. Fully commit to pursuing those things which Christ values. Seek the things that are above Seek Christ's reign in your heart. Live decidedly to further the cause of Christ in your daily activities. The Puritans called this uh, vivification, coming alive to righteousness, a kind of awakening to the righteousness of Christ. Romans 12 puts it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect If we are to walk in this, it means we must, you know, it, it, it requires a re- reorientation in our minds, right? What is success? What are you meant to do? Who are you meant to be? You were made in the image of God. You are most you when you are pursuing Christ and becoming like him. You're no longer who you were. Your new life is hidden with Christ and will be completed in heaven. Live for that. Put your heart into that. And if and if you're uncertain, you know, some you you might be uncertain, okay, you know, where do I stand with Christ? It says it starts with if you've been raised with Christ. If you're uncertain where you stand with that, I just say this. This is what Christ is inviting you into. Right, Not a bunch of rules, not a bunch of laws, not a bunch of morals that you have to abide by so that you will be less happy but more holy. No, it's so that you can fulfill the purpose for which God has created you. And in that, there is 
satisfaction that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for what you did on the cross. Thank you so much for your self-sacrificial love. Thank you that all of our debt is canceled, that all of our punishment has been paid because of your blood that was shed. And thank you, Jesus, that you invite us into this relationship with you in which we can be raised with you, in which we can become like you, and we can have joy in our purpose fulfilled as we pursue you every day. God, give us courage and give us strength and give us humility as we pursue that as the bee of our lives. We declare, God, that's, that's what we want. We ask, God, that you would empower us to be able to do it. We love you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.